Well, good morning, Fairhaven Church. Great to see all of you. Thank you for being here. If uh, we have not met, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's great to have you uh, joining with us today. I want to say hello to all of our campuses and for those that are online joining us. We're so glad that you could join us today. We have been in a series entitled One-on-One where we're looking at conversations that Jesus has one-on-one with somebody. And those subjects are really interesting because when he has a one-on-one conversation, it's pretty important to pay attention to the subject matter in which Jesus is talking. And so we started out the series where we saw that Jesus had a one-on-one conversation with a woman about her past. And so we looked at that in our own lives. And then we looked at uh, Jesus had a one-on-one conversation about prayer and uh, and how that relates in our lives. A really important conversation as you and I pray every day and and ask God for different things in our life. And then last week we looked at God, uh, Jesus, as he has a one-on-one conversation about achievements in life. And uh, we talked about that and how important. And Levi did a great job with that. And this week we're going to be looking at two places actually. Jesus had a conversation with a group of people, but then he had a one-on-one conversation with an individual that you'll know about when we start to read it, and you'll see, and it's about a conversation that divides every single room. It divides families, uh, it divides workplaces, it divides neighborhoods, uh, it divides churches, and uh, it's not a subject that really I want to talk about, but it's one of the one-on-one conversations that Jesus had, and so we have to tackle it, and I want to introduce it to you today, and it's the subject of politics. Everybody take a deep breath. This will be my last Sunday with you. Thank you very much. Jesus has a one-on-one conversation, and he talks about it, and I want you to see through the historical context, and I want you to see how the early Christians handled a very divisive political season that they went through, even though we're going through one perhaps even in our own lives today, and we need to see how Jesus handles that. And so we're going to be looking at how Jesus handles our politics, and we're going to be talking about that. It's just that important that I hope you brought a Bible with you, because we're going to go to two different places uh, in the New Testament where Jesus has these conversations. So grab your Bible, if you will, and go ahead and turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 22 is the first conversation that we'll look at, and we'll look at that in just a little bit. And then we're going to go to John chapter 18. I'll give you those again a little bit later here as we get, uh, as we get rolling here. But as we talk about politics, I know that some of you uh, are thinking to yourself, boy, this is, it's about time. It's about time that we said something about politics. And there's others of you that are like, oh, no. I should have skipped this week. I mean, it had been very easy for me just to kind of, you know, glide over this one. Uh, Some of you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, this really doesn't matter. Why should we even be talking about this? Some of you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not going to go far enough. Or some of you are going to think I went too far in the conversations. Um, Some of you are maybe asking the question, and I want to ask it for you. um, Does Jesus care about politics? And is politics something that we should talk about in the church? Because it's, it's a very frightening subject because of the divisiveness that we see all around us. And so I want to give you the bottom line right up front so that you know, and all of us can kind of just take a deep breath. Here is why it's important for us to take a look at what Jesus talks about in this one-on-one conversation. The reason why we should have this conversation today, by the way, if you're, if you're a guest with us, we don't always have these conversations, but help me out, those of you that attend on a regular basis, we don't shy away from hard conversations. Is that right, church? We do not want to shy away from hard conversations, and so we need to talk about this, and here's the reason why, because unity in the church is at stake. It's one of the greatest dividers in the church today. 
And we cannot allow it to divide us as a church. We cannot allow it to. And we're going to be looking at that and how Jesus had this conversation and how all of us can learn from what Jesus has to say and historical context from the early Christians as they lived out their faith every single day. And so if you want, you can download the notes that are on the app or the website. I've given you tons and tons of notes so that you can understand both the historical context and you can understand the conversation that Jesus is having here. You see, unity of the church is at stake. I'm here to tell you that there are political leaders that will come and go. There are political parties that will come and go, but the kingdom of God will last forever. And we are people of the church. If you're here today in any one of our campuses or online and you are a follower of Jesus, we are part of another kingdom. Our citizenship is in a kingdom that transcends all of this. We are part of the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that today. And that kingdom of God will last forever. You see, our politics, our, our hope is not rather found in politics. It is in Jesus. Would you agree with that, church? Our hope is not in the political scene that we find ourselves today. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, it's lessened or not important, so I want to make sure that that's clear as we go through this today. I want to make sure that as you have passions and as you look at Scripture and as you read what God's Word has to say, there may be issues, political issues, that you're really, really um, interested and passionate about, as you should be. However, we need to make sure that we are not divided as the church of Jesus Christ because our politics is not where we find our hope. It is found in Jesus. Christ. The truth of the matter is, let me go back with you a little bit before we read into Matthew chapter 22. The truth of the matter is, is that this season that we find ourselves in today is not the only time of divisive politics. I think you know that. But let's make sure that we can rewind a little bit and take a look. C.S. Lewis, who's an author, I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. Here's one of his books, The Screw Tape Letters. He wrote Narnia, that's probably more well-known. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote Narnia. He also wrote Mere Christianity, a great, great book. I've read both of those books. And this one as well, Screw Tape Letters. And this is a book that was written in the early 40s when there was great tension in the church of whether Britain should go to war or not in the World War II. Some Christians said, oh, this is a holy where we need to be involved. Some Christians said, no, we shouldn't be, we should, uh, we should not be involved. In fact, it's more holy if we're not involved, we should be pacifists, and we should not be engaged at all. And there was division, even in the church back then. And so C.S. Lewis wrote this book. It's kind of a strange book, because screw tape is actually the name of the uncle, and Wormwood is the nephew, uh, weird names, and screw tape writes this letter to Wormwood in trying to convince Christians to abandon their faith. It's a tongue-in-cheek, it's sarcastic in nature, and this is what he wrote, which is, I think, really interesting, given what was happening in the 1940s of whether Britain should go into war or not go into war at all. And he says this in the screw tape letters, let him begin by treating the patriotism or the passivism as part of his religion. Again, the church was battling between whether we should go into war or not go into war. So patriotism is, let's go to war, it's holy. Uh, pacifism, let's not do this. God wouldn't be happy if we did this. And so he says, let him begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion. Then, he goes on um, in this letter, then let him under the influence of partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part of his faith, 
Then, goes on in the book, then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of passivism. Now, that's a lot that's there. Let me reduce this to language that you and I can understand today. Here's what C.S. Lewis was warning the church back in 1941, and I think it's pretty good for us even today, and that's this. He said, first of all, his warning was, politics is important, but it starts as part of our faith. Chances are that in your politics and whatever that might be, um, you have read God's word, hopefully, and, and as you read God's word, you see what's important to God. Therefore, we should advocate for that in our society and our culture today. But C.S. Lewis warns us that politics starts as part of our faith. And then he says, if we're not careful, politics becomes the most important part of our faith. Uh-oh. And then he goes one step further beyond that, and he says this um, in this book, The Screwtape Letters. Faith in Jesus, then, is simply a tool to advance our politics. And I don't think any one of us would want that in our lives. I don't think as a church of Jesus Christ, we would want that at all in our life. Here's what C.S. Lewis, let me put it in one statement. C.S. Lewis is saying that politics has the potential to reduce faith in Jesus to one dominant issue. In this case, whether Britain goes to war or doesn't go to war, and that's how the dilemma all started. That's why he wrote this book, The Screwtape Letters, and there was great division and divisiveness even in the early 40s in Britain, particularly in the church. But you know what? You can go back even further than that. You can go back because as we read Matthew chapter 22 and as we read John chapter 18 where Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this man about politics, I want you to know that even in the first century, there was divisiveness within politics. Can I show you? Let me show you in the first century, because there's at least five political parties. Um, some people say there's more, but we know there's at least five political parties that were in the first century. Now, on your notes, if you download them from the internet or the app, I've given you a huge paragraph about each one, describing the differences in each of these political parties. And that's, this is the context in which Jesus has a conversation with this man named Pilate. We'll read that in just a few minutes. But I want you to see, they had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they were the religious legalists. They thought they knew the law better than anybody else, and they were the only ones that kept it well. They were an arch enemy to Jesus Christ, and that's why we read so much in the New Testament about how Jesus addresses the things that they say. The Sadducees were the rich ones. They were the aristocrats. They were the ones that were modern. They were progressive. Um, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirit-filled anything. They didn't believe that anything was going to happen after life. I mean, this life is all you got. That's what the Sadducees would say. And so they politically would charge that up in their life. Then you had the Herodians, and it sounds just like what it is. They supported Herod. They were supporting the Romans, particularly the Roman Empire, and many of them were Romans, although some of them were not Romans, and they came from the publicans. There were the Zealots. Uh, the Zealots were people who were like the first century terrorist, if you were. They wanted to do everything they could to destroy Rome. As a matter of fact, how many of you remember that on Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they had branches, they were waving, and they were, Hosanna. They were hoping that Jesus would come in and actually overthrow Rome. 
Many that were there were part of the zealots because they, they wanted to do away with Rome. If they could just get it rid of Rome, their lives would be fine and everything with their relationship with God would be fine. And you and I know that that's just not accurate. Then you have the publicans. They were Jews as well, but they were the traitors. Uh, Matthew is a publican. I'll show you that in just a little bit. Um, where They were part of Rome in the taxes, and they did things for the Romans, and so they were traitors, and so they, were, they would vie for different things that happened too. These were the five that we know of. There were some say there were many more, but these five right here, and in the context of this, I want you to get to Matthew chapter 22. All right, so let's take a look. Matthew chapter 22. Hope you have a Bible. If not, scoot next to somebody because I want you to see this. This is Jesus having a conversation with two groups, two political groups. This is not the one-on-one conversation. This is the, group, this is the conversation he has with, um, with a group of people, and uh, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. So it says this. Matthew chapter 22, pick it up in verse 15. He says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, him there being Jesus. They were trying to catch Jesus and trying to see if he could, you know, they could catch him politically. Verse 16, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. You may want to underline that in your scripture. You got two different political parties. They were arch enemies. I mean, the Pharisees were like, we're the religious legalists. We know the law. We know what we should do here. And the Herodians were like, no, this is all about Rome. And they hated each other. And yet the two of them came together to try to trick Jesus. So the Herodians said, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearance. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay to Caesar taxes to Caesar or not? Now again, let me put up the political parties here because I want you to notice this, that in Matthew chapter two, 22, we have two, we have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, they ask the question, should you pay taxes to Caesar? Now I'm gonna show you in just a second, the Pharisees would say no because of idolatry, because on the coin would be the face of the emperor and uh, inscription on there would be that we should honor the divine Augustus. So the Pharisees would say, no, that's idolatry. Um, We shouldn't be part of that. That's idolatry. We want no part of it. The Herodians would say, that's uh, Rome's money. You owe it to Caesar. You should pay him. So let me show it to you. Here's the coin. It's a denarius and it's one day's salary. And so they were bringing this to Jesus. So what Jesus do? He said, bring me the coin. We see it right there. Let's take a look at it. He says, bring me the coin. So Jesus, verse, verse 18, says, aware of their malice, he said, you put me to the test, you hypocrites. Show me the coin for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And of course, they, both the Pharisees and the Herodians said, well, it's, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. And I would like to add in there, they were very confused, as they should be, because Jesus didn't answer their question the way they wanted him to. The Pharisees were hoping that Jesus said, yeah, it's idolatry. Don't do it. And then the Herodians were hoping that, you know, the, that Jesus would say, yeah, get behind us. I mean, we're actually, you know, we're, we're part of Rome and get behind us. And so here's the inscription, the son of divine Augustus, and it's there. And I want to remind you that Jesus says this, render or offer to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If you like to underline or if you like to write in your Bibles, you might want to underline or write this. The implication that Jesus has there is this. 
there are two kingdoms at work here. There's the human kingdom with human politics, and there's the kingdom of God. Caesar has a few things, and he owns a few things, but God owns everything. God owns it all. And so he's listing these two things out. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus is saying in this verse right here. See, he's saying that Jesus will transcend the political parties of his day. Watch this. And that he wants his followers to do the same today. He does not want, Jesus does not want for politics to divide us as a church. Would you agree, church? He does not want us to be divided. We need to make sure that we understand how we as followers of Jesus can come together, even though we have political passions, even though we have political issues that we want to support, um, we need to make sure that we understand God's word and we need to understand that there's a kingdom that transcends all of that and the early Christians were about that. Let me show you. Actually, if you want, you can jot this book down. It's called The Destroyer of Gods. In The Destroyer of Gods, he writes a historical con context of all of this that's going on. It's really, really fascinating. It's a hard read, by the way, but if you want to, you might want to read it. Larry Hurtado writes about the early Christians, and this is what he says. In the early first century, the early Christians did not have a voice at all that they could express. They had no voice. They were in a monarchy. They had no opportunity to vote. They had no opportunity to stand up for their position. And so the early Christians did what Jesus wanted them to do as a kingdom. And I want to give you five things. I want you to see five things that the early Christians did that I believe we could do. Fairhaven Church, we could do this. We could be a part of this and show the world around us that though we have different ideals and ideas and issues politically, we don't have to be divided. We don't have to be divided because there's a kingdom that's higher and transcends all of that. Let me give you the five things that the early Christians were involved in that transcended all five of these first century political parties. First thing that they were involved in was this. They were involved in multi-ethnic worship. They wanted the Jews and the Gentiles to worship together as they came to faith in Jesus, as they began to understand what God has done through Jesus Christ. They brought multi-ethnic groups together to worship and to experience small group and community. And church, don't raise your hand, but how many of you agree that's what we want here? We want multi-ethnic worship happening at Fairhaven Church with a variety of different backgrounds and experiences Many of you know, my wife and I, we grew up in, in Asia. I grew up in Indonesia, and my wife grew up in Cambodia. And so we, we understand the world differently because of growing up in a different kind of a country and different kind of a government and political scene that was there. It's really, really interesting. And here, the early Christians engaged in multi-ethnic worship. I love Revelation. Write this down. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says... That at the very end of the age, when there will be no political parties, no nations, it'll be the kingdom of God. A scroll will be opened. It says in Revelation chapter 5, and the scroll will be opened, and the scroll will read that God was the one who was slain for you and for me. He died for us. And it says in there that his blood ransomed us 
to allow us to be part of his kingdom, that we are people of God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. That's Revelation chapter five. That's inspiring. That's who we want to be at Fairhaven Church. We want to make sure that as we understand this one-on-one conversation of Jesus, that we're not divided by the political issues, but that we're united around multi-ethnic worship because that's what heaven's going to be like. Every tribe and every nation and every language, it's unbelievable. And so they centered themselves and engaged around multi-ethnic worship. Here's the second thing, if you're jotting this down. The early Christians advocated for the unborn. Here's what it's called. Infant exposure. That in the first century, if you had a child and you didn't want that child, you would simply take that baby and throw it on the trash heap. There was all kinds of things that happened to the unborn. There was all kinds of things that happened to little babies. You can read the historical context and you can read the accounts. It's actually found in the Destroyer of the Gods. It's unbelievable what took place. And yet the Christians, you know what they did? The Christians adopted them. They fostered these children. They brought them into their home. They advocated for the unborn. They advocated for all of that because of what Jesus says in Scripture in Psalm 139. They would have known the Old Testament. Here's what Psalm 139 says. Psalm 139 says that God formed our inward parts, that he knit us together in our mother's womb, that his eyes saw our unformed substance, and we were written in his book every day that we are going to live before we had one of them. That's amazing. That's a God that loves us that much, and they knew that. The early Christians knew Psalm 139. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Torah. And so they advocated for the unborn based on Psalm 139. Here's number three. Here's what the early Christians did. The early Christians, they supported the poor because the poor were being oppressed and the poor were were being pushed out and they were being exploited. And so they actually supported the poor. They took offerings and came around, kind of like what we do here uh, for people who have less in our community. And we, we take special offerings and we try to help those in our community who have less than we do or people who don't have the advantages that some of us have uh, here. And it's so important. And it's what the early Christians did. They united themselves around these things and refused to be divided around those political issues in their life. So they supported the poor. And of course, in scripture, we see in Matthew chapter 25, read the whole chapter 25, but Jesus says this in Matthew chapter five, if you do something for the least of these, that's people who have less than you and I do, if you do something for the people of least of these, you've done it to me. That's what Jesus says. When you do something for someone who has less than you, you know what you do? You do it for him. Because that's what kingdom people do. They advocate and they support those who are struggling in our community. And that's what they did. The early Christians did that in this highly divisive political scene back in the first century. And Jesus was involved in all of this. And so then number four, the early Christians focused on marriage. Now, make sure you pay attention to this. Because it wasn't marriage at the expense of singleness. Because there are many of you that are single in all of our campuses. No, it was they focused on marriage because of sexuality. They focused on marriage because women were being exploited and men were destroying their lives. They focused on the fact that Genesis chapter 2 has something to say to us about the fact that God has brought together a man and a woman. 
and how God is bringing that together and creates a family. It's a best place to help a child to be raised and, and to help the fostering and helping the poor and all of this. So talked a lot about marriage. And so we see that in Ephesians chapter five, verse, verse 32, it talks about the fact that marriage is the picture of God and Christ and the church. And so we see that. And so the early Christians, you know what they did? They focused on proper relationships. They, pro- pro- they focused on proper sexuality in their life because all you have to do is read 1 Corinthians All you have to do is read 1 Thessalonians. I mean, you think that our culture today is sexually charged? Nothing compared to the first century. Nothing. Now, I don't want to get there. (laughs) Anybody with me on that one? I don't want to get there. Um, But it's nothing compared to that. And yet, the early Christians rose up and they said, we want to talk about right relationships and right sexuality and dealing with each other and helping with the poor and the unborn and, and those kinds of... And then they did one more thing. And this is the last thing that they were involved in, or at least that we know of. They lived as peacemakers because Jesus taught a sermon on the side of a mountain. And he said, blessed, help me out here, church, if you know it. Blessed are the, what? Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in Matthew chapter nine, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Unbelievable. This is what the early Christians did. They came together, even though they had no vote, even though they were in a monarchy, even though they had no voice, and they came together and they lived out their faith in this way. In church, I don't know about you, but I'm inspired. Let's read the one-on-one conversation that Jesus had. Let's take a look. If you have your Bibles open already, let's take a look. John chapter 18, drop down to verse 33. There's only four verses, but it's a power-packed conversation. It's one-on-one. Jesus who Pilate thought would represent one of the political parties. Turns out, if you read the New Testament, church, listen carefully, if you read the New Testament, you won't find Jesus advocating for any specific political issue. He advocates for the kingdom of God, and he speaks towards issues. But here in John chapter 18, here's what happens. And it's a surprising conversation, actually. It says this, so Pilate, verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again, And called Jesus and said to him, so they're going to have a one-on-one conversation. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, the reason why he asked that question is he's saying, so which political party are are you representing? That's what Pilate's asking. Are you part of the Pharisees, Sadducees? Are you part of the Zealots? Where are you in this? Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? In other words, I don't know which way you're coming from. Come on, you can't answer me that question. Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He's essentially asking, it looks like one of the political parties turned you over. What have you been doing? Which ones did you make mad? Which have you upset in the context of all this? Verse 36, and Jesus answered, underline this in your Bible. You've probably heard this. You've probably read this. There's so much involved in this. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered to the Jews. He said, look, if this was about a political party, I would have given the call, and we would be fighting right now. I mean, there would be chaos in the streets. There would be all kinds of things, but that's not what happened. And then he says, but my kingdom 
is not from this world. Church, this is a really, really, in fact, if you miss everything else today, don't miss this. Because this is what Jesus is saying in this one-on-one conversation. See, Jesus did not try to reform human government. He actually came to replace it. He actually came to replace it. He said, my, my kingdom will transcend all of these parties. I came actually to replace it. Even though you may have a political issue, you may have a political bent, you may follow and support a political party, um, that's not the issue. The issue is, as a follower of Jesus, what ought to unify us is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you and for me, and the fact that his blood was shed and that you and I can have part in a kingdom that will last forever. He came not to reform it, but to replace it. And I want you to notice that even in the 12 disciples, probably some of you didn't know this, that even part of the 12 disciples, two political parties are represented. Did you know that? Look at this. Simon the Zealot is one of the 12 disciples. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, even though there's no stories about him. Don't know why there's no stories, but he is there, he's invited, and we have Matthew, who writes the book that we just looked at, Matthew, who's a publican, and they would have hated each other, because the zealots would want to overthrow Rome, and Matthew was actually helping Rome as a Jew, he was a traitor, and yet Jesus brought them together as an example of the fact that his kingdom transcends all of that, because he came to replace it. So Jesus says this in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. All right, church, I'm going to get real practical with you, if that's all right. I'm going to end with these five practical things that will help us, I think, in our own thinking and in our own uh, processing of all of this. This is really, really, I think, important for us as a church family, because I think we'd all agree, hopefully, we would all agree that we don't want politics to divide us. See, Jesus, when he gathered his disciples, he didn't say... They will know us by our vote. He didn't say that. He said they will know us by our, help me out church, by our love. Now certainly you should vote if you have that capability and and privilege in a nation. But that's not how the world's going to know us. It's going to know us by our love. Multi-ethnic worship, supporting the unborn, helping the poor, doing all those things that the early Christians did that we find all through scripture. Let me give you a couple thoughts that I think will be helpful for us as we process this um, without just shedding everything that we're thinking about and some of the issues that we care deeply about. Let's talk about the kingdom of God. See, in the kingdom of God, human politics will never entirely capture the kingdom of God. It will never, never entirely capture that. Um, that doesn't mean that political parties are bad. It just means that they, no political party can absolutely cover the gospel for us. It just can't and it won't. And it has throughout all of history. It's important for us to understand that, that it can never entirely capture the kingdom of God. And so we have to make sure that we're very, very clear about that, um, even in our passions and even as we vote and even as we uh, exercise our political right in our life. Secondly, in the kingdom of God, we need to honor the privileges of your nation. See, in America, we have the opportunity to let our voice be heard. In the United States of America, you have the opportunity to vote. You should vote. If you're not registered to vote, I want to encourage you to to get registered to vote. It's important for us to be able to do that. We have that. You know, when I grew up in Indonesia, you didn't have that opportunity. Saudi Arabia, if you're a Christian, you don't have that opportunity. There are places all over the world. How many of you agree with me that the kingdom of God is not just 
about the United States of America. Right, church? It's not just about the United States of America. But we live here, and how great is that? And so in the kingdom of God, we need to honor the privileges of our nation. Let me make one comment. You should Google the special election on August 8th. You should Google that and make sure you know what the issues are, because there's a vote that's coming. There's a vote coming in November. You should Google that, and you should make sure you know what the issues are, because as a church of Jesus Christ, we have privileges, and it's our opportunity to honor those privileges as part of being part of the kingdom of God. So that's really, really important for us. Thirdly, in the kingdom of God, you can be a single-issue voter, but you can't be a single-issue Christian. In other words, there may be an issue, a political issue, that drives you into the ballot box to vote on something. That's good. And hopefully it's centered around uh, a principle from God's word. But that can't drive your entire Christian life. Does that make sense, church? You can be a single-issue voter, but you cannot be a single-issue Christian. We should care about all the things that are in the kingdom of God, even though when we vote, we vote around a particular issue usually, and it's really, really important that we understand that. You can be a single-issue voter, but not a single-issue Christian. Number four, the dominant issues need to engage us. If you're passionate about something, we need to be engaged with those issues, but it can't create adversities. We can't allow those issues to create division among us as followers of Jesus Christ. Don't raise your hand. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that? I want you to think about that because that's just that important. What's at stake here, church, is the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. There are people that are watching us every single day. I don't enjoy talking about politics. I'll just be honest with you. In fact, I've been sweating this for weeks. (laughs) Thinking to myself, you know what? There could be so many things that we could say. We could talk about so many different issues. But you know what's at stake here? the church of Jesus Christ. And we cannot allow it. We cannot allow that to divide us. Lastly, the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, reforming human government is not the focus. It is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly the gospel has um, issues that we need to advocate for. So make sure you understand, I'm not minimizing political issues. I'm just saying, let's be careful that we advocate for the gospel because the gospel advocates for those what the early Christians did, and that is multi-ethnic worship. We should advocate for the unborn, for the poor, for marriage and relationships and right human, human sexuality and peace. We should be peacemakers in our life. At the end of the day, let me leave you with this, church. Let me leave you with the idea that our unity is found in Jesus. Amen, church? That's our unity. So would you bow with me? I think it'd be appropriate for us to pray. We have politicians in our church. We have representatives. We have state representatives in our church family, and we should pray for them. We should be aware of the issues. We should do our research. We should make sure that we're informed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so relevant to our lives. We thank you that as we look at our lives and we see the very things that sometimes divide us, we thank you that you call us to something higher, something better, the kingdom of God, as we think through what it means, because we will last forever. We will live with you forever. 
But Father, we know that in this day and in this age, there's so much that we need to speak against and we need to speak for and we need to advocate for and work against and all those different issues. And so Father, I pray for all of our local representatives, our state representatives. We pray for our congressmen, our representatives that represent us in Washington. We pray for our politicians. Lord, they have a very difficult job. I pray, Lord, that you give them wisdom. I pray, Lord, for us as a church family that you would help us, Lord, to be a church that's not divided by these issues, but, Father, that we would come together and that we would fight for the kingdom of God and do right by you because that brings pleasure to you. We thank you, Father, that you come to transcend all of these parties all the way back to the first century. It's amazing. Father, help us to do that. We ask, Lord, for wisdom in our daily lives. We ask for Uh, governors on our conversation in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our small groups and Father that we might honor you we might be about the things that are part of the kingdom of God we thank you Father that we can have this honest conversation we thank you Lord that you can guide us and lead us we thank you Lord that everybody here whether they're new visiting or Father have been here for years Lord that we can center ourselves around the fact that our unity is found in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, and it's his name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen.